Our Father, we are blessed to be part of the body of Christ, a worldwide institution, and far more than an institution, the very creation of God, the bride of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth of the word which penetrates our hearts day by day and draws us together as one people. And Father, I pray that we will be of one mind and one accord as we look at your word today, that your Holy Spirit will give us the insight that we need to understand and to see beyond simply the historical and geographical factors into the great spiritual warfare that existed not only in the days of the early book, early in the book of Genesis, but also certainly in the days of Isaac and the problems that he faced as he walked with you. Lord, we learn from these how to walk more faithfully ourselves. Help us to apply the word and to live accordingly. Bless each one today in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 26th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 12. 26th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now, as you look at the family of the covenant, Abraham and Isaac, as we have looked through the chapters so far, do we find anything unusual here in this passage? Is there something that for the first time appears relative to this family? Is there anything you saw as we looked down, anything that kind of leaped out to you? It mentions that he okay. became wealthy. Wasn't he already very wealthy? Mm -hmm. So he's becoming more wealthy. Okay, uh, but he was, for the first time, a farmer. A whole new concept here relative to the family. Abraham was what? Basically a nomad, right? And a man who raised animals. He was a shepherd, a goat herd, a, a donkey herd, a <laughs> cattle herd. Uh, he raised all of these different animals. So what we're seeing here is for the first time a shift from a nomadic lifestyle to what we would probably call at this point, knowing what's going to happen next, a, so, a semi-nomadic lifestyle. Now we could say that Abraham often was semi-nomadic too. That is, he did put himself down and he stayed put for a while and his herds grazed out around, and, but he did move from time to time. Uh, we're looking at a situation here which could have led to a sedentary lifestyle. It does not, but it could have because God has not yet given them the land. It's been promised, but not yet given. But here we discover Isaac sows the land. He puts in a crop of grain. Out of the blue, it seems, all of a sudden Isaac's a farmer. This is the very first use in the Old Testament of the word so, S-O-W. Now, we know that farming was mentioned before. We, we read clear back in the fourth chapter of Genesis that Cain tilled the ground, which implies, of course, that he sowed seed. But this is the very first use of that word in Hebrew, zarah, which means to sow, to scatter seed. Now, if you become a farmer, you must develop a sedentary lifestyle. That is, if you're going to continue to farm the same piece of land, obviously. Now, does Isaac own any land? What land does Isaac own? Remember? What piece of land did Abraham buy, which was thus inherited by Isaac? The cave, right? The cave of Machpelah, the double cave. So that was owned. But what other land was owned? None, right? He was a sojourner. 
in the land. So Isaac continues to sojourn as, as Abraham had. And they would not actually possess the land until after the exodus, right? They move into the land under the auspices or the leadership of Joshua. So they are not yet owners of the land. They're still <coughs> nomads in, in the land of promise. But in order to become a farmer, you've got to pretty much possess or have use of a piece of land. In this case, he probably rented a piece of land, or maybe Abimelech simply says, oh, go ahead and use this land. But I think Isaac, like Abraham, who would not accept the cave of Machpelah as a gift, even though it probably wasn't truly offered as a gift, uh, I don't think Isaac would accept a piece of land to sow seed and to grow food without paying uh, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, for the use of the land. So moving into farming, what is he doing? He's broadening his economic base. He's not only into raising animals, he's also now into farming, producing grain. This is going to change or lessen his economic dependence upon outsiders. Because no matter how many cattle you have, you still need grain because they were a grain-eating people much more than we are today. Having been soundly chided by Abimelech for his deceitfulness, for lying concerning his wife, Rebekah, Isaac is learning, slowly but surely, sort of the way we do, slowly, hopefully surely, he's learning to depend more and more on the Lord. Well, we sing that song, right? Learning to lean, learning to lean. Learning to lean on whom? Well, God, hopefully. And Isaac is slowly but surely learning to lead on the Lord, for, lean on the Lord for help, for protection, to, to minister to the needs of this great entourage uh, which he is responsible for. Now, we are in this land, that is, <laughs> Isaac in this, is in this land, he's in the land of Gerar for what reason? There was a famine, right, in the land. And he was in Gerar, which apparently was not as hard hit by the famine. And thus, there was grass for the cattle, and there was grain available. So he was living in, sojourning in the land of Gerar, the city-state, the Philistine city-state of Gerar, at that particular time. Now, with a famine, what happens in a famine to the supply of grain? Well, it tends to diminish, doesn't it? And we know by the law of supply and demand that as a product diminishes, its price tends to go up. And so Isaac, paying more and more for grain to feed his large, uh, what should we call it, workforce and family, uh, decides now apparently to grow the grain himself. Now, we will see there's a few problems with that, of course. But this is his choice, apparently. So he doesn't have to depend upon local grain supplies and upon the higher prices or the difficulty of acquiring those supplies. The Lord tells us over and over again in Scripture that our God shall supply our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Do we really believe that? Isaac is learning. God supplies. But there's, uh, there are other truths in the Scripture that fit together with that. How does God supply our needs? Well, as we already have noted, God supplied Elijah's needs rather miraculously, right? A birds, birds bringing food as he sat by the brook, Kareth. But that isn't the way God normally supplies our needs. Every once in a while, God does supply our needs in ways that seem miraculous. You know, the distant cousin you never knew about died and left you $5,000 or, or uh, you know, something like that happens. But generally, God supplies our needs by giving us what? Work. Gives us the strength to work and the opportunity to work so that we can earn a living. We've talked about the concept also before of those, sometimes we're tempted to think that way, but certainly many in the world think this way, that I have earned this by my own strength and my own ability. I am not dependent on God for anything. But when you think about that, where do we get the talent and the strength to begin with? We get it from God. Where do we get the opportunity to work? We get it from God. 
Think of the many countries in the world today where uh, economic opportunity is lacking. We talk about the terrible situation in our country when unemployment gets to 7% and 8%. And yet you go to Mexico City where unemployment is 50%. You go to Zaire where unemployment is 70%. And you think, how do they live in a land like that? We couldn't live in this country with unemployment of 70%. I mean, it would be absolute, total, complete disaster. We'd have to all go back to uh, the way the Indians lived here in California and grubbing for acorns or something in order to survive. If, if that were to happen to us today, um, you know, we, we look at the pictures of Somalia and, and we look at the pictures of Ethiopia and we wonder, how do these people live? God supplies our needs often because he, by the, by the means of giving us the strength and the opportunity to work and thus to provide. And we need to be grateful and thankful to God for that and never to take it for granted. Oh, you know, I've got this strength and I've got this ability and certainly there's always going to be a job for me out there. Well, we all know that that's not true, especially in Reading. Where difficult, it's difficult to acquire a job here in this town. But God is there, and we have to trust in him. And Isaac is trusting in him. Isaac is trusting in him, and he's sowing the ground to provide for his own need. We have no record in Scripture here, as you read down through this uh, 26th chapter, that Isaac had any experience in farming before at all. And there's no statement here saying, and the Philistines took him out and showed him how to sow the land and how to do this and how to do that so that he would have a crop. There's no record of that either. But certainly Isaac watched the Philistines sow the land. Certainly he watched them harvest the land. Certainly some of the members of his own entourage knew about farming. And Isaac himself probably didn't go out and actually run the plow. He may have. But remember, he's got a household, uh, we, we computed, more or less estimated, in the days of Abraham, his household was 2,000, and here we're told in this passage that his, the numbers are increasing, so you know, maybe three or 4,000, we don't know how many are attached to Isaac's household by now. And certainly, they would do the actual work of farming. But what is really important here, now, significant, what is significant here, is the statement of the increase. What was the increase for his planting? 100 fold. Now to us who are not farmers, we may not know what that means. I mean, we, we know it means 100 times what he planted, but we may not know what that means relative to what you ought to get for a crop. But remember Jesus' parable on the uh, seed that was scattered and fell on stony ground and so forth. And what does it say there? It says, some, the, the, the seed that fell on good ground, some reaped 30-fold, 60-fold, and the max was 100-fold in that statement. So is that a, an absolute statement? I don't think so. But certainly it's a statement of, of ballpark statement of what it was probably like to get a good yield given the abilities of people in those days, the technology in those days, the land that they were sowing. Hundredfold was probably very good. And so we have here Isaac garnering 100-fold. Top yield. First year as a farmer. As you read down through this passage, you keep getting the sense that the Philistines are jealous of this man. I wonder why. I mean, he has primitive equipment. Uh, well, probably is up to date for that day since he was a wealthy man. He probably could buy the best. But from our perspective, primitive equipment, you know, primitive technology, and, and yet uh, this, this great production. What does this show us? That God was blessing him. And it says so specifically in the passage later on. God blessed Isaac. And thus, there was great produce. Now, where is Gerar? Well, we noted that Gerar was located, oh, about a dozen miles or so to the northwest of Beersheba. Now, that whole region, which is uh, south of Jerusalem, south of the Judean hills there, uh, if, you, if you can picture, visualize the Dead Sea, 
come to the southern end of the Dead Sea and go to the left, <laughs> in your mind, looking at the map, go to your left, go west, uh, you will move out into the area which is where Gerar was. Today that region is called by uh, modern geographers the Beersheba Steppe, the steppe land of Beersheba. And Gerar is out in that steppe land. Now if you look at the uh, map that gives the rainfall of that area, you'll notice that the region we're talking about is between the 200 and the 300 millimeter isohyets, the you know, rainfall averages which means we're talking about an area that probably averaged around, at least today, averages around 10 inches of precipitation per year. Now, what does 10 inches mean? Well, I, I grew up in Fresno, California, which averages about nine inches. Farming is done around there. A great deal of farming is done around there, but it's almost 100% irrigation farming. They pump the water out of the ground to irrigate the crops. There's not enough rainfall to sustain most crops. The climate is very similar. It's a CSA climate, both at Gerar and in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley, which means a very hot Mediterranean type climate. So we're talking about an area where 10 inches of rain is not adequate for normal dry farming. If you look at the history of the United States, as people migrated across this country from the East Coast towards the West Coast, once they crossed the 20-inch Isahyat, farming began to become very iffy. One year you would have a good crop, the next year you'd go bust. Because you, 20 inches is pretty much what you need to have, given the temperatures that range in that area, to have a good chance at a fairly decent crop in that particular soil. And so we're talking about an area where the rainfall is low and therefore for him to produce such an abundant crop in, involved the direct intervention of God. That's what this is saying to us here. Isaac had inherited great wealth. But as Mike noted uh, a moment ago, we're told in this passage that his wealth increased greatly. His flocks grew, his household grew to such proportions that the scripture tells us the Philistines envied him. <laughs> How often do the people of the world envy Christians? Quite often they don't. Quite often the people of the world seem to have more of this world's goods, not all of course, by any means. Even Abimelech seems to have been overshadowed by the wealth and the power of Isaac. I mean, he was the king. You know, it was just a city-state, and he probably only had a few thousand subjects altogether. And, and the total territory that was under his control was, you know, maybe a few dozen square miles. We don't know how big an area it was. It wasn't terribly large. But, but here was this nomad who was more powerful and more wealthy than he, certainly, and great envy welled up in his heart. Why did God do this? Why did God give Isaac such vast wealth? He already had inherited huge, uh, huge herds. He already had a household of several thousand. I mean, literally his tents, as he planted himself in any particular place, formed a small city. Why did God give him more? Does this mean that God wants all of his people to be wealthy? Well, we know that there is a doctrine being taught in this country today that teaches that, the health and wealth gospel, that all God's people are supposed to be healthy and wealthy. I mean, that's very appealing to the flesh. It just doesn't happen to fit reality, nor does it fit Scripture. Does it mean that when a few of the early Puritans who got their minds screwed up and, and missed the real teaching uh, of, uh, that the Puritans taught and, and started to equate uh, God's blessing with wealth, the more wealthy you were, the more obviously obvious that it was that God was blessing you. Most Puritans didn't believe that, but there were many who did. Is, does that mean that that's true? Well, we know certainly that that's not it. Remember Jesus' words? He said it was more easy 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples were astonished. Those people who heard him were astonished because they all thought that the more wealthy you were, obviously, the greater was the blessing of God and the more likely you were to get into the kingdom of heaven. After all, you gave more to the temple, so God owes you more, right? This, this is worldly thinking. You know, I, you've probably heard the various explanations I have too. And somebody said, well, you know, there was a gateway into the city of Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle, and it was shorter than other gateways, and camels had to get way down like this in order to get in. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's somebody's uh, stretch of the imagination. Uh, there was no such gate into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is literally saying that it's more difficult for a rich man to get in heaven than to, it would be to strain a camel through the eye of a needle, even a big needle. <laughs> I mean, he's making this great comparison here. Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort right now in full. Can you imagine how that must have rung in the ears of some of the wealthy and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who heard this? Whoa, you mean Jesus is saying that we're getting all we're going to get right now with our wealth and there's nothing for us in the afterlife? It's what he was saying. Because, of course, they were trusting in their riches and they weren't trusting in God. Let me, let me turn to one of the passages there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. It, it's, it's so often read and, and preached on that sometimes we, uh, we miss the impact of it. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's the key. The last phrase is the key. Why is it so much more important for us to lay up treasure in heaven than here on earth? Doesn't God need rich people to carry on his kingdom? Doesn't he need rich people to build the big churches, to finance mission organizations? Doesn't he need these people? Scripture teaches us that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. It's just the natural tendency of the human being. And if our treasure is here, uh, I was listening one time to tape of, of one of the well-known preachers of this day, and he was saying one time that a friend of his gave him 500 shares of stock in a particular company. I don't remember if he mentioned or what company it was. And he thought that was really wonderful. You know, that was a very nice gift. But he found that as time passed, he kept more and more often looking in the pages to find out where his stock was, had it gone up, had it gone down. And he found himself pretty soon almost consumed with thinking about that stock. Where is it going now? He finally said, I had to get rid of that stock because it was driving me nuts. I had become concerned. And it was taking my mind off what was important. No, I'm not saying by that, and he wasn't saying by that, that it's wrong to own stock. But the, he was just driving home this point, that where your treasure is, your heart tends to go. And, and if our treasure is only here, that, that tends to be where we focus ourselves. But if we keep putting the treasure in heaven, then our eyes keep going that way too, so to speak. And our heart tends to think on heavenly things. Paul speaking to Timothy in 1 Timothy, has good words that apply to us too. 1 Timothy 6, 6.6. 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare 
and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Strong words, very strong words, particularly in our society, because we are so materialistically oriented in our society. We have such a desire for those things, and it's, it comes at us from everywhere, doesn't it? You can't even drive down the street without billboard after billboard. You know, you need this bigger, fancier car. You need this Rolex watch or you whatever you, you need. I mean, it's not just a desire. It's not a luxury. It's a need you know, that we have. And, and, and we need all these things. And the only way you can get them is by having lots of money or going so deeply into debt, you know, you can't see the top of the pile. It's a materialistic uh, orientation. The treasure is here and not there in heaven. You remember the account, we won't turn to it in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking concerning the church at Laodicea. He's telling John, this is what I want you to write in this letter, this kind of a circular letter that was being sent to the seven churches where John used to kind of be a circuit writer. Um, Jesus was saying to the church, uh, the people there at Laodicea, that they had been blinded by their wealth. And he said that their riches so blinded them that they didn't realize that they were literally, as it says there, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. <laughs> I mean, they were coming to church in extremely fancy garments, you know, sort of the old uh, Easter parade type concept, you know. And uh, they thought they needed nothing. I mean, we have it all. And Jesus said of them, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and you don't even know it. <laughs> That's really sad. And when God's people don't know the condition they're in, that is sad. And sometimes we can say, are they really God's people? Well, he alone knows that. Many will say, if God will simply give me wealth, I will help build this church. I will give great sums to world missions. And there have been such, and many of you know the story of R.G. Laterno, who rather than keeping 90 and giving God 10%, he gave God 90% and he lived on the 10%. Of course, the 10% was such he didn't have to eat beans, but nevertheless... It's the mind and heart set that was so important. But how many of us would be R.G. Laternos? How many of us, if God were to give us great wealth, would actually use it that way? Would we not be tempted to just kind of measure God's amount really specifically? Ah, give him the 10%. But I will choose how to spend the other 90 and probably most of it would be spent on our own comfort and our own security. You've heard it said many times, as I have, that uh, God doesn't give us great wealth because he probably can't trust most of us with it. And when you really think about it, I mean, just as you're lying there in bed sometime, think about it. Now, if God were to give me a million dollars, what would I do with it? And be honest. <laughs> would I say, oh, there's this great need. They need 200000 to erect the building here at church. I'll give them the 200000 The college out there needs, well, it could take more than a million. <laughs> what if the Lord gave you $5 million? <laughs> Anyway, what would you, you know, would you say, okay, I'll keep, I'll keep 50000 and give the 950000 to the Lord? I mean, how many of us would honestly <laughs> really do that? Well, probably won't happen to us because the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. Like political and social power, great wealth tends to make us arrogant and self-dependent rather than humble and God-dependent. And one of the most fabulous examples of that is in the book of Daniel. Let, let's just turn to it. I, we've referred to it before and you've read it many times, but to me it's such a... It's not on your outline, but Daniel chapter 4. 
To me, this is one of the <laughs> most poignant pieces of scripture. Daniel 4, 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. Now, can you picture him? He's all his regal robes with his entourage, you know, and he's strolling around looking over the great city of Babylon, which stretches out, you know, for miles on each side with the great hanging gardens that he built there for one of his wives because she couldn't stand living out in the desert and because she came from the mountains, so he builds her an artificial mountain. And, you know, this great ziggurat over here where they worship their, their gods, uh, all, all this beauty, the river which bisected the city one way and the canals that ran the other way. I mean, it was sort of like Venice and, uh, and uh, Vienna and Paris all mixed together in, in one city. Out in the middle of this, this desert-like, well, step-like territory, <laughs> Iraq today, if you will. Here he is walking around looking at this. And literally, they have discovered in digging up there that there were numerous bricks that came from the city which have Nebuchadnezzar's name on them, indicating, you know, he had his name stamped on the very bricks that built the city. And so you can imagine why he says what he says. The king reflected. And he said, Is this not Babylon the Great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and by the glory of my majesty. Notice the pronouns there. I myself, my power, my majesty. God responded. Now, God doesn't always do that. Sometimes God allows people to do those kinds of things and, and he says nothing at the time. But he said something very clearly at this time. Basically, there was a resounding no out of the courts of heaven. Huh. No, you jerk. You know, it's not, not here. But, you know, God, God wouldn't use a word like that. That's a very human term. <laughs> God views all of us as precious souls, even the jerkiest of us all. And so he wouldn't do that. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows, on, bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He must have been an attractive person out there, <laughs> prowling around the grounds on his fours, you know. He must have really... I'm sure that those who took his place just laughed at him, not realizing that God in seven years would restore him to power. I mean, it's unheard of in history where, where a king goes mad like that and actually is able to come back to power. I mean, there are very few instances of anything like that taking place because whoever takes over power is not too likely to want to have the former person come back. In fact, that's why they often do away with them. Uh, put them in a tower someplace, you know, and accidentally they die of starvation or something. Uh, all kinds of things like this uh, have happened. What this tells us, not only, is that God will not tolerate arrogance on the part of one to whom he has given such vast wealth and power, but God is contr in control of the power of authority on this planet. And we may think that our government's out of control, but it is not out of control. It's not out of God's control. And God will bring about His purposes in His time. And we as His church, if we get together and pray and forget the stupid differences that we have between uh, many of our denominations and really pull together, might see that happen sooner rather than later. This, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, never ceases to amaze me. And the whole book of Daniel is uh, really a, a tremendous uh, statement.
as to God's presence and activity here and now amongst us here on the planet and how God will honor those who are humble and how he will debase those who are proud. We are commanded to lay up our treasures in heaven where we can't lose them because nobody, not even the, the most brilliant thief can take it away from us there. Nothing can destroy it because it's in God's presence. How do we get such treasures? By walking in faith and obedience? By doing the will of God? I was listening this morning, Lois uh, turns on Erwin uh, Lutzer from Moody Bible Church, and he comes on at 8 o'clock, I think it is. And uh, <clears throat> he always has good things to say, but today he was talking really uh, along this line in many ways, and he was saying that just your faithful attendance in church is a form of laying up treasures in heaven. Your commitment to prayer meeting, your giving of your wealth liberally to God, not, not out of a mean-spirited heart, but out of a generous heart. The, all of this is laying up treasures in heaven. You know, it's not that God has a big calculator up there and it says, oh, well, look, he came to church today, cling, you know, but it's the attitude of heart, the, the desire to serve him, to be what God wants us to be that keeps laying those treasures up there in heaven. There are those who say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And, and to a certain extent, that is true. But to say that you don't need to be a part of a church is to say, as Charles Colson is arguing in his book, The Body, is to say that you're not really part of the body. Well, if you're not part of the body, the problem is you're not in God's kingdom because the body of Christ is his church. And the individual units are, you know, just that, little cells within that total body. And we need to be committed to and a part of a local congregation because that's the way God ordained it to be. Now exactly what these treasures are and what they will mean to us is not said in Scripture. But certainly they'll be so, so much more valuable to us then than any treasure we might have here now is to us. If this is all true, and, and I believe it is, why does God then give Isaac such great wealth? Is he not tempting him to, to become self-dependent, to become arrogant? Well, I think he gave him the wealth for at least three reasons, which I've listed there on the outline. One is a confirmation of his covenant with Isaac so that Isaac will know that he is just as important a link as is his almost legendary father Abraham. How many people historically have stood in the shadow of their father or maybe their mother and I've always felt like that they were less important because they had a great father or a great mother. God wants us to know that every single one of us individually is just as important as any, every other individual. No one is less in his eyes than another. And he wants Isaac to know that. Isaac, you're not just simply the cord that stretches between Abraham and Jacob and that those are the important ones and you're just kind of the little conduit in between. You are also important in my eyes, Isaac. And you are as important a link in the transmission of the covenant as Abraham and as Jacob. Now, of course, he doesn't know what Jacob's role will be yet. But notice, uh, let me just read one example, but this is one of many examples. You don't have to turn to it, but in third chapter of Exodus, I just picked one. Sixth verse, uh, third chapter of Exodus, God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice he includes all three. And you look through, uh, go to a, uh, a concordance. You go to the concordance and look up Isaac. 
and find out how many times it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, over and over again, the three are repeated together. God doesn't just say, well, he does in a few places, the God of Abraham or the God of Israel, but how many times he says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? See, Isaac is important too. And he's in confirming to Isaac, you are important to me. You're a link here that I need, that I have established, and you're an important link. And, you know, this, I, to me, this, this is very helpful because we, we can become so demeaned in our own uh, mind that we think we're not important to the kingdom of God. You know, the, the pastor is important, and the pastor's wife's important, and the, the PKs, the preacher's kids are important, but, you know, this little old me and my little old wife and my little old kids, well, they don't count for much of anything. That's not true. We're all of equal standing, equal importance in God's eyes, and every one of us is essential to the body, the body of Christ. Secondly, I think the wealth was given to reinforce Isaac's faith in the reality and power of this God that was the God of his father and that has appeared to him now these two times. He had no Bible to go to. He couldn't turn to... Ezekiel or Psalms, you know, he couldn't turn to Psalms to be comforted in that hour of crisis. He couldn't look up a, a wonderful Psalm that says, the Lord is with you and though 10,000 fall by your side, it will not come nigh ye. He couldn't read that. He had nothing of the Word of God to read. Nothing to reassure him, reassure him about the nature of God and, and of the source of his faith or the purpose of his faith. So God tangibly blessed him to reinforce the actual words that God had spoken to him in the theophanies that had occurred. And then thirdly, I think it was a testimony to the world. It was a testimony to the Philistines and to the Canaanites in general that Yahweh is God. You know, we sing the song, Our God is an awesome God. I like the song, and the truth is there. I just wish that one word was different. He is not an awesome God. He is the awesome God. There is no other God. He is the God of gods. And everything else that calls itself a God is simply a stick or a stone or a demonic presence behind that human concept. Isaiah tells us that the gods of this world are just simply dumb sticks and stones. And I'm always, I, I didn't look it up, but I'm always, <laughs> it always gets me to, you know, when I turn to that passage in Isaiah where, in effect, Isaiah is saying that the pagan goes out there, he chooses a log, he cuts the log in half, and he carves one half into his god, the other half he chops up into wood to burn a sacrifice to his God. Now, what if he'd chosen the wrong half of the log? <laughs> he'd have burned up his God, you know. It, it, Isaiah is just so, you know, that God gives him such insight there. And you, get a, you, you sense the stupidity of the whole thing. You carve this God and, and then you worship it. You make it with your own hands and you fall down and worship it. But that's what's going on all the time. And when he reaped for a 100-fold increase from this stepland, which probably produced very poorly for the Philistines, they knew that his God was powerful. Because they had never seen a crop like that before. I, you know, you can just, if you're a wagering person, <laughs> you could put some wager on that. That they had never seen a crop like that. They were, oh, we're, you know, it hasn't rained, it's a drought, and look at this crop this guy's getting out of this dusty old field. I think it was absolutely amazing to them. God was testifying to the reality of his power by continuing to increase the wealth of this man, Isaac. Now, do the Philistines say, whoa, this God is so great, we better worship him. No, they chase Isaac away. Get out of here, Isaac. We don't want you around. You intimidate us with your wealth. 
and your power. They filled up the wells that Abraham had dug when he was in Gerar before. They filled them up. Why would they do that? I mean, how stupid is it to go out and fill up a well that somebody has worked hard to dig? And there's water available to you. So you go out and dump dirt in it. Now, what kind of sense does that make? Why did they do that? They did that, I think, because they didn't want nomads such as Isaac living there. It was their land. They claimed it, at least. But they weren't populous enough to actually fill up the land, but they didn't want anybody else to have it. So they dumped dirt in the wells so nobody would stop there and uh, graze their animals, such as Isaac wanted to do. I think it's important for us always to remember, as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through these things that seem like purely physical encounters, to always remember, as we're made so aware of today, that behind it is a spiritual warfare going on. And I think that that spiritual warfare in many ways was more intense than the warfare we know. And the reason I believe that is, first of all, today, we always have to remember that the number of demons is finite. There are only so many of them. And, and they, are, they do not have... Uh, 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 you know, they do not have omniscience, they do not have omnipresence, they do not have omnipotence, they are limited in their power, they're limited in their knowledge, they're limited as to where they can be, they only be at one place at one time. Satan is not worldwide, individually, or oh, his, his influence is because of his many demons, but he's only one place. Where would he have been in the day we're talking about? No. Today we could say, well, my goodness, where would he be? Ha haunting Billy Graham? No. Would he be over in, in the glass cathedral? Or where is he today? You know, lots of places he could be around the world. Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some might say, why bother with that? <laughs> it's already gone. Well, no, let's don't say that. <laughs> there are a lot of godly people in Washington, D.C. Even in the government. But uh, in this day, where would he have been? I mean, where was God accomplishing his purpose? Where was the covenant man? Satan knew where he was. And I think he would have pulled out all the stops. The gates of hell were roaring against this man, Isaac. In the third chapter of the book of John, we have insight as to what literally is going on in these kinds of situations. There are several passages in Scripture we could read, but let me just read from third chapter of John, verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, who, that is, who practices evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested by having been wrought in God. So why did they chase away Isaac? He was the light. He was the source of spiritual illumination. He believed in the true and the living God. God's blessing was upon him. They lived in darkness. Their deeds were evil. They practiced evil. They didn't want to come to the light, so they threw, shoved the light away. They made Isaac move. Go somewhere else, Isaac. You make us intimidated. Well, the intimidation wasn't just an intimidation of wealth and uh, uh, power and, and uh, you know, maybe a possible military force, something like that. The real source of that intimidation was spiritual. In their spirits, they were intimidated because they knew he was right and they knew this was good and they didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't want to give up the, the vileness of their faith, their, their own religion. And all you have to do is make a very, very shallow study of the religion of the Canaanites and related peoples to know how sensual it was, how appealing to the flesh, how giving to every appetite of the flesh those religions were. And you can understand where people could only be miraculously converted to change from that. They would not want Isaac around to make them, to, to, to spoil their fun, as it might be. 
What could Isaac have done in this situation? He could have resisted. He could have said to Abimelech, don't bug me or I'll blow you away. I'll take your town and burn it down. I mean, this man had the, I think he had the power to do it. I think he could have put together an army that could have matched just about the army of, of the Philistines from the city-state of Gerar. And, and he had the, would have had the wealth to, to support such an operation. But he is a peacemaker, was a peacemaker. Isaac was a peacemaker. He chose not to fight. And we're not, we don't have time to develop it today, but we're going to find he chose not to fight not because he was a coward, but because he was a peacemaker. And there's a big difference. It's sort of like the guy who's sitting at the stoplight with a Corvette. No, he doesn't have to prove to this guy over here with his little uh, Ford Fairlane that he could run circles around him. It's not necessary. Both know. So why bother? <laughs> Isaac knows he could take Abimelech but he chooses not to because he wants to do God's will. He wants to be a peacemaker in this situation. He had been encamped near the city of Gerar, apparently. Now he moves further to the east, we're told, into the vale or the valley of Gerar, which is a region about halfway between Beersheba and Gerar in, in the Beersheba steppe. And that's where he begins to dig up wells, open uh, old wells that Abraham had dug and dig some new wells. And what happens? Each time the Philistines argue over the well. And each time Isaac could have said, if you don't cut this out, there's going to be war. But he doesn't. And what does God do for him? Well, God finally gives him a well, which he doesn't have to fight for. And he says, ah, a well in a broad place a well which God has provided, and it's, it's there for all. There's enough for all. And then, of course, the focus becomes the well again at Beersheba, and where another covenant of peace is made. And we'll look at that uh, next week.